Well, good morning, everybody. If you open it up to Matthew 24, back to Matthew. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Everybody there? All right. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do just ask for Your help today. How we need it every single day. And we just recognize that You are King. That You came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And I ask that you would help us to see all that you have for us. God, that you would help us to heed the things that you say here. Help us to interpret. I do ask for the places where I am wrong, in difficult passages like this, that you would just help that fall away from people's minds. Pray that you would give us all um, just help in, in understanding what you would have to say to us about your coming. So Lord, would you give us courage today? Would you give us a bunch of hope today? In Jesus' name, amen. So few things struck fear into me as a child more than the end times. I can remember seeing movies from the 70s and 80s shown at the church I grew up in about the rapture of the church and the great tribulation that followed that scared the heck out of me. And heck is the wrong word. I can still see the guillotines sparkling with blood from the head of a Christian martyred for their faith in the great tribulation. Movies like this and talk of the end times in the framework I was taught all had quite the effect on me. At times when I couldn't find anyone in the house, I can remember calling people that I knew were Christians to see if they would answer and hanging up when they did to tell me that I hadn't missed the rapture. The events surrounding the second coming, not Jesus himself, but the events surrounding the second coming induced more fear in me than anything else. And so don't get me wrong, the day of the Lord should spark a healthy dose, dose of fear in all of us. But not the kind I was experiencing. But most of all, I think that the day of the Lord should spark a longing, an expectancy in us for the future return of King Jesus. That's what it should do. That He is going to establish in final fullness all that He already accomplished at His cross and His resurrection in history in A.D. 33. 
We should live our lives like he's the point of everything and the one who has all authority over any ruling power in this life, over any boss, any president, any dictator, over Satan, over sin, over death, that Jesus is the ultimate judge of any and every single human being. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords in the midst of a world that is insane and an earth that is groaning. Jesus is the hope. He's the hope of the world. He is the hope of human history. And this coming is not a wish. This hope is not a wish. It is a promise. It is a fact. Let's be honest, often what sparks the most interest in Christian circles isn't so much Jesus' actual coming itself, but possible events that may or may not take place in the end times. Speakers hold seminars on it. Authors write best-selling books on it. Nothing sells like blood moons, economic collapse, surviving during the last days, secret keys to unlock prophetic codes. Christians eat it up. We love it. Be it Bible studies with a bunch of charts and scary news stories or fictional accounts about particular interpretations of the end times like the Left Behind series, which has sold like 80 million copies. Apocalypse sells, period. And it's not just in Christian circles. It fills popular culture as well. Zombies are a big deal on TV with The Walking Dead. Target even has kids figures of The Walking Dead. Novels fill bookstores with post-apocalyptic themes and get turned into movies like The Hunger Games, which made about $3 billion worldwide if you take all the movies together. Cormac McCarthy, famous American novelist, in a more serious novel, wrote The Road, which won a Pulitzer Prize in 2007. And so art fictionalizes apocalypse. And apocalypse just means a cataclysmic end to something. Something cataclysmic has taken place. Because we know as human beings that the end, whatever that end is, that it's coming. We make art about the apocalypse because we want to make sense of this lingering feeling in all of us about not just our own individual death, but about, in a sense, the death or the end of everything, that something significant will end life as we know it. So everyone has an eschatology. Now that is a word that we may not like, may sound a little bit froofish or frothy, but it's a fancy word that we need to get familiar with. All it means is the study of the last things. The study of the last things. I guess lastology, you know, or endology just didn't sound cool enough for theologians. They always have to invent words or use Greek and Latin probably just to make them feel better about themselves. But anyway, that's what we have, eschatology. An eschatology isn't just in Bible studies and theology. A strictly evolutionist perspective is that the earth will end. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who you may have seen on TV, wrote on Twitter, in five billion years, the sun will expand and engulf our orbit as the charred ember that was once earth vaporizes. Have a nice day. That was his tweet. And in 2017, the world's most famous scientist, Stephen Hawking, who actually recently died, felt that recent political actions by the U.S. government would cause the Earth to reach a tipping point and become like the planet Venus, quote, with a temperature of 250 degrees and raining sulfuric acid. He also believes that a major disaster of some kind on Earth will take place in 1,000 to 10,000 years somewhere but that humans may be okay due to interplanetary travel. So he encourages that. So while Hawking and Tyson opt for fire, others opt for ice, ice age. The poet Robert Frost put, it, put this debate actually in a rhyme. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted, in, what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if I had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. So if there's one thing about eschatology before 
the end is that talk of it usually ends in debate. Frost may rhyme about it, but it's good to know that Christians aren't the only ones that fight about it. So the church has debated about exactly how the second coming of Jesus will go down since he came the first time. And the arguments come in bulk. Is the secret rapture of the church pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? Or do the scriptures even speak of a secret rapture of the saints before the coming of Christ at all? Does the millennium that the Bible speaks of literally refer to a historical 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, or does it serve a more symbolic purpose? What about the role of the people of Israel in all this, and how do they fit into the Old Testament and New Testament prophecy? What's the meaning of numbers like 666 and 144,000 and beasts that come out of the sea? All of these discussions can get heated, and sometimes for good reason, because Where we come down can frame the way in which we interpret the whole of Scriptures and our outlook on the world. Especially when it comes to your tolerance or intolerance for symbolic language in the Bible and how that may impact your view of Scripture. Potential geopolitical issues or justifications or protest against war in and around Israel. How much Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament expectations in the event of his first advent or how much is coming later in the second advent. So there's a ton of issues that get tied up in this. And we should be encouraged that it's not just the modern church that hasn't been able to come down to universal agreement on these issues. We need to be encouraged by that. The church from its outset has been confused on it. Paul addressed it in the city of Thessalonica Thessalonica, with a letter, Thessalonians, to clear up how bad eschatology affected day-to-day life because some were hearing that the day of the Lord had already happened. He wants to correct that. Later, Justin, not my brother, but Justin, a second century Christian writer and martyr who was born in 100 which is about 70 years after Jesus walked the earth and 40 years after Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in AD 70. He, at that time, was asked about whether he believed in a literal millennium. He said, I and many others are of this opinion and believe that such will take place as you assuredly are aware. So that tells you that he believes in a literal millennium. But on the other hand, I signify to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. So the debate isn't new. And I think it's good for all of us to remember that though we may not belong in the same camp in the end times, we all belong to the same Jesus. And that's what's most important. We as leaders in the church want you to know that what's most important to us is that you belong to Jesus by faith in his good news. That's what's most important. And that we are free to disagree on this issue. So I may say something today that you don't like or that you disagree with. That's okay. Bob or Brad may get up here in a few weeks and say something that I don't like and I disagree with. That's okay. We love one another. And we are all looking forward to the day in which Jesus comes. So, as we continue in the weeks to come, let's keep Jesus as King, the key person here, central. Keep Him as your focus and His call to us as His people in this chapter to live in light of His coming. Don't get too tangled up in the thorniness of the details of how the second coming is going to go down. We're going to enter the thicket a little bit today. And in the weeks to come, but Jesus is the rose. He's the rose in the thicket that we are after. So maybe the most important thing that I hope you get today is that our view of the end times should mainly be tied to Jesus. Apocalypse is about Jesus. Eschatology is about Jesus. Our series title for this, you may have seen the slide, is The End. And the reason for that is twofold. One, history as we know it is in the process of a catastrophic end, like a period at the end of a sentence. Two, 
it's moving forward toward the end as a goal. So it's not just the period at the end, the last thing that happens, but it is moving forward to it as a goal that terminates on Jesus. Everything culminates on Him. Creation, all of the cosmos is in the process of birth pains toward this purpose. And whether we caught it or not, what we found in the Gospel of Matthew is that the end has already begun. The end has already begun in the world. Apocalypse and eschatology is not just about something that is going to happen, but it's about something that already has happened and is happening. So when Jesus came into the world and began his three-year ministry, something radically changed. He said that there was a shift. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Something new was breaking into the old way of life. In him, the scriptures that had gone before, the Old Testament, in him, it was coming to fulfillment. It was coming to their goal and their purpose. So the end times is not about what happens right before Jesus' second coming. It's found in between what has happened in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, life, death, and resurrection in his first coming and then his second coming at the end of history. It's all of that. And I think the week after Easter is a perfect time, actually, to hit this and to discuss the last things because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning of the end of the world. New creation has already begun. He's already begun to reverse the effects of the fall. And so the New Testament writers see his resurrection as so significant that I think we might call it as apocalypse now, to use that phrase. Eschatology now, apocalypse now. The writer to the Hebrews shows us the way the early church thought about the end times in the very first chapter, which obviously would have been written after this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the writer of the Hebrews is saying, in these last days right now, people that I'm writing to, God has spoken, and now he has spoken, finally, in his Son. Later on in chapter 9 of the same book, he says this, Christ did not therefore enter any holy places made by human hands, however truly these may represent heavenly realities, but he entered heaven itself to make his appearance before God as high priest on our behalf. There is no intention that he should offer himself regularly, like the high priest entering the Holy of Holies every year with the blood of another creature. For that would mean that he would have to suffer death every time he entered heaven from the beginning of the world. No, the fact is that now, at this point in time, the end of the present age, he has appeared once and for all to abolish sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as surely as is it appointed for all men to die and after that pass to their judgment, so it is certain that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many and after that to those who look for him, he will appear a second time, not this time to deal with sin, but to bring them to full salvation. So now at this point in time, meaning then, Christ was offered to bear the sins of many. The end of the present age. He appeared to abolish sin by the sacrifice of of himself. And he will come again. So the end times is now. Not because of a significant event in Israel in current events or in future events but because of a significant event in the past in Israel. The longing of Israel for God's coming and the Messiah had come. His name was Jesus. So we no longer look to Israel primarily for prophetic fulfillment, but to Jesus who is the fulfillment. Where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Adam fails, Israel fails, Jesus succeeds, reverses everything. So let's get to the text. The first verse, the first verse in Matthew 24, 
tells us that Jesus is leaving the temple and that the disciples are staring in wonder at the temple. Remember, Jesus had just been confronting the religious leaders of the temple and calling down woe upon them. His words in Matthew 23 were pronouncements of judgment over and over again. So when we read that Jesus left the temple, we should see his departure as both a literal movement toward the Mount of Olives, he's headed east toward the Mount of Olives, and also as deeply symbolic. Jesus physically left the temple with his people and headed east, like the presence of God in the book of Ezekiel that left the temple and went east. And that Jesus is no, excuse me, that the temple is no longer the place where God is primarily found. And the disciples don't quite get what is happening. They just want to make sure that Jesus doesn't miss the beauty, the stunning beauty of the temple buildings. And it was stunning. It was actually an architectural wonder during that time. Tourists loving to see it. And so they want Jesus to join in. They want him to get out his smartphone. They want him all to take a selfie around the temple. Instead, he predicts that it will be destroyed. He's not interested in the outer beauty of the temple. He's concerned about its inner world, which was not beautiful. The word for thrown down in verse 2 is that of destruction, disassembling, dismantling. And so according to Jesus, judgment was going to fall on the temple because the presence of God was not going to be accessed any longer between tabernacles or temples, priests or sacrifices, but in Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the temple where God dwells. He is the place. He is the sacrifice for sins. He is the priest who brings us to God. And so a religious cataclysm was happening. An age was ending. The temple would be destroyed. Religion was being toppled. Human achievement is being annihilated by the achievement of God in Christ. So Jesus is predicting the end of religion as they understand it. Verse 3. So the disciples want to talk about this. They're curious about it. They want to talk privately. Probably for good reason. That kind of prediction wouldn't be tolerated. They ask a question which reveals the way that they think about the end of the world and gets to the heart of what this whole chapter is about. It's also the place where things get confusing and all kinds of interpretive challenges arise. What parts of Matthew 24 is Jesus' answer to the first question of the disciples? When will these things, these things, the things he just said, like the temple and stones being thrown down, when will these things be? And what parts are Jesus' answer to what seems to be the second question of the disciples? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I think it's fair to say that the disciples would not have viewed the things Jesus is saying about the end of the world in the same way we would. So they're not thinking about nuclear war or interplanetary travel, global warming, zombies, or about how America might fit into prophecy. They're thinking about the various understandings of the Old Testament Scriptures. And Israel, the Old Testament Scriptures, in their understanding, didn't have a separation between the first and second coming of a Messiah. There would be one coming of God's royal Messiah who would visit His people, throw out their enemies, set up His kingdom. And that would be it. That would be the ballgame. So talk of destruction in the end of the age and the Messiah coming had a different feel to it. And they were all kind of connected together. All of it was kind of wrapped up together. So Jesus is going to surprise them in more ways than one with what he says about what will happen in the coming days and years in his ministry and specifically in Jerusalem. It's my understanding that he's saying that the coming of God has taken place in me as the royal king. Messiah, Son of Man. 
And so it's my understanding that most of Matthew 24 contains Jesus talking to his disciples about what will happen to them and to the temple in the sack of Jerusalem by Rome, which happened in AD 70. In the near term, not about what will happen at his second coming later. In fact, I think a lot of the predictions he makes in Matthew 24 are about his enthronement as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in his victorious crucifixion and resurrection and when he ascends to the Father with all authority. So to paraphrase one writer, we see here in this chapter the dethroning of the temple and the enthroning of Jesus. This chapter is about a cataclysmic ending of religion and the beginning of the end of the new world. Jew and Gentile must find their identity in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Not religious structures. Not nationalistic pride. Not the law. God has come to the world in Jesus and this present age is ending and there's a new one that is dawning. And that there is an overlap. There's an overlap between these two ages. The kingdom has come in Jesus' first advent, advent, and the kingdom will come in its fullness, in its second advent. And so I think this best explains some of these verses throughout this chapter. If his predictions are primarily not an answer to the disciples, but an answer to a future generation thousands of years later, it's hard to make sense of the immediacy of fulfillment that Jesus seems to imply in this chapter. So therefore, verses 4 to 14 contain Jesus' predictions and warnings to his disciples for that 40 years or so between when he said it and between the temple's destruction. That's the way I understand it. Um, What I thought I'd do for a second, Brad, if you can throw that up there. What's the end times without a chart? So this is kind of the way that um, I'm picturing it from from a framework that I'm working with. And again, this can, be, this can be wrong. So you can read all kinds of different people. There's all kinds of different opinions. But that there is this concept of two ages in the Bible. So basically what you have is you have creation. That's the big dot there. And this is my lovely writing. X, that's bad. That's the fall. We have Adam and Israel all through this time period. You'll see that here's the cross. Little tiny cross. So we have this present age. Boom. Jesus comes. This is D-Day, to use that metaphor that writers have used. D-Day, allied troops landing to defeat the Axis powers. And on D-Day, sin is forgiven, the devil is disarmed, and Jesus kills death. That's what happens on D-Day. And then, V-Day, when, what, that was years later? When victory was actually declared, but the pivotal moment was D-Day for World War II. On V-Day, death and the devil are destroyed completely, finally, fully. Lake of fire, done. And everything in between this period is called the end times. Because the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth, started when Jesus rose from the dead. And so everything in between is the kingdom of God being held in tension. It's already come. It's already here. It's not yet here. That's why the verses in the Bible are sometimes confusing. It says things like, you're already raised with Christ. Your resurrection's already happened. Wait, no, it hasn't. My body hurts all the time. I have conflict all the time. I have sin all the time. Um, This world is in a constant upheaval all the time. So that already not yet is is happening for however long. Nobody knows. That's what Jesus says. And so this idea that God has come as king in the person of Jesus is what would have been one event is one event now that is happening over a period of time. God came in his first coming. He's enthroned. He's going to come Again, there's more of a division than I think would have been expected by the ones who heard it. So, this overlap between the age to come and the present age, that 
what is to pass is passing away and that what is to come is coming and has already come. Some of the benefits of the age to come are already available. So there's one other thing in here. I shouldn't put that down. 8033, 80-70 right here. So that's just a little tiny, little tiny area when Jerusalem was destroyed, which I think is mainly what is talking about here. And not just that historical fact and the fact that it was destroyed, but really the meaning behind that. And so verses 4 to 14 contain Jesus' predictions and warnings to his disciples for that 40 years or so. The fulfillment of verses 4 to 14 have already happened in the coming tribulation that Jew and Gentile Christians would face under Gentile Roman rule and also Jewish persecution as well. And that it would come on Israel as a whole in the Jewish war. There's about nine events or so that that, um, he describes in these first 14 verses, he being Jesus, that are fulfilled then. And all of these will take place between the time he spoke it to the destruction of the temple 40 years later. But whether you agree with with that form of interpretation or not, the commands he gives his disciples about the way they should live in light of his prophecy are just as true for us now. They are caught up on the timing of all this. When's this going to happen? And we get caught up on the timing of everything too. So we misplace our emotion if we walk away from the sermon and Jesus' words more amped up either positively, wow, that makes a lot of sense, or negatively, what is he talking about? That's completely wrong. If we walk away more amped up about which verses are about AD 33 and 70 and which verses are about the second coming, I I think we're missing the point. You may not agree with my interpretation or you may not agree with the next preacher's interpretation, but that is not the point. Don't miss the call of Jesus by staying stuck on the calendar. Throughout these chapters, he actually warns against focusing on timing, period. Instead, he desires that we live with expectation for his return and with endurance. So we can easily learn from Jesus' warnings to the disciples about what they will face in their lifetime and about what we will face in our lifetime. So in these two paragraphs, Jesus pleads with them, don't be deceived, verse 4. Don't be afraid or alarmed, verse 6. Don't let your love grow cold, verse 12. Why? Because hard times are coming. And in hard times, the greatest enemies are not persecution, geopolitical strife. It's not what other people think of us. It's not about the increase of wickedness in our culture. But the greatest enemy is losing our commitment to the truth, is dwindling courage, is abandoning our love for God and for other people. That's the enemy. Deception, fear, and lovelessness are what the disciples and what we ultimately need to be concerned about. Verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And so Jesus is letting his disciples know that there will be many false messiahs in the near future. Which they're probably thinking, but if the Messiah comes, everything's good to go. There's going to be a bunch of false ones. Josephus, the noted first century Roman historian, tells us that this happened often during that time, and that Romans arrested messianic pretenders just about every day. Jesus also wants them to know that many people will chase after these individuals. And it may be easier to not follow a crazy individual, but when everyone around you starts following them, it's much harder to not go with the pack. And he says many will follow. Verses 6 to 8. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And conflicts were very normal in that period. Sam Storms writes, The period, AD 33-70, to witnessed countless military disturbances. An uprising in Caesarea took 20,000 Jewish lives. At Sethopolis, 13,000 Jews were killed. In Alexandria, 50,000 were slain. 10,000 were killed in Damascus. 
And so Jesus doesn't want his followers to be surprised or scared by what's about ready to happen to them. And in fact, it's what he says must happen. Must happen. But he says the end is not yet. Eruptions of strife among nations aren't the only conflict. Eruptions in the earth were going to happen too. The book of Acts talks about famines. And then we have a bunch of earthquakes that happen as well. Pompeii shook in the year 62. Jerusalem had several earthquakes. We have, of course, crucifixion, 33. And then in 48, they had another one. Laodicea, which was near there in the Bible mentions, had a large earthquake during Nero's reign in AD 60 that destroyed the city. The Roman philosopher Seneca, you may have heard that name, during these times wrote, How often have the cities of Asia and Achaia fallen with one fatal shock? How many cities have been swallowed up in Syria? How many in Macedonia? How often has Paphos become a ruin? News has often been brought to us of the demolition of whole cities at once. End quote. So according to Jesus, all of this is simply the beginning of birth pains. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be surprised or frightened by all of this. It's like a pregnant woman at home, not yet ready to go to the hospital, but beginning to experience the discomfort of contractions. And so in other words, things are about to get worse. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And so having our world shaken is one thing, but being hated, hurt, and killed by other people is another. And this is exactly what the early church experienced. The ESV has deliver you up to tribulation. That sounds bad. But sometimes that word tribulation just has all this biblical connotation. doesn't always feel maybe as real. The NRSV has hand you over to be tortured. So this is a sobering thing. And when you read the book of Acts and the book of Revelation, we see the great sufferings that the followers of Jesus endured. And of course, the great sufferings that they continue to endure. Verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And so relationships are destroyed. Betrayal and hatred will infect hearts. We see this all across the New Testament. Christians will be handed over to the authorities to be persecuted. A lot of people will turn from the faith. The following away pictured here is a lot like that seed sown on rocky ground in Matthew 13, 20-21. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately he falls away. End quote. So endurance for a while is not Christian endurance. This is the opposite of what Jesus calls for in verse 13 of Matthew. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we shouldn't walk around suspecting each other's faith, but we must understand that not all professing Christians are genuine Christians. It's good for us. It was good for them. It's good for us to realize this so that we don't become discouraged. We will be saddened when people bail on Jesus that we know. But Jesus said it was going to happen. So don't tie the faithfulness of Jesus to you by the faithfulness of other people to Jesus. He will not fail you. Others will. Verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. This sounds a lot like what has gone before, but here the emphasis is on false prophets instead of messiahs. Those that speak false words from God. Really, this can be any kind of false teaching that either adds to or subtracts from Jesus. So the Christian life is all about holding fast to what Jesus has said, what Jesus has done. It's about abiding in Jesus, sticking close to Jesus. One of his disciples who was standing there, John, wrote a letter, which I was out there, but I think we read it earlier this morning, that sure sounds a lot like Jesus' words of warning here. 
throughout these verses in Matthew. That false prophets began to come into the church. And a bunch of the New Testament epistles are written about that very thing. Arising with new ideas, new words, new information, new anointings, new knowledge, or sometimes going backward, going back to the law. In 1 John, false prophets had come into the church to say that Jesus wasn't enough. That Jesus did not, or that Christ did not come in the flesh. That there was special knowledge, there was newer teachings, there was new stuff that you needed to have better access to God. And that's what John confronts in chapter 2. And I'm just amazed that if you kind of think of the themes of what Jesus says to us here in Matthew 24 about these themes that John is telling his people. Children, it is the last hour. There we go again. It's the last hour then. Not for whatever last 70 years or whatever happened in the future. It's the last hour then. Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist false messiahs, is coming. So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. That's how we know. Well, that's what Jesus said. We know it's the last hour because Jesus said this was going to happen. They went out from us. They left. They didn't endure. They bailed. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They're not of us. They're not Christians. They weren't Christians. They left. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So again, this fixture on truth. Know the truth. Don't be deceived. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. That's a whole other issue. But here he's saying, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Go back to what Jesus said. Go back to, go back to what you've learned. Go back to the Gospel. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. Then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Again, there's a bunch of people trying to deceive you. Don't listen to them. Stick to the truth. Stick to Jesus. Go back to what you've heard in the beginning. Go back to the Gospel. But the anointing, Holy Spirit time, the anointing you have, you believe this? The Holy Spirit has converted your heart. You are, you are in. You don't need some new special knowledge to get into some higher level. But what you've heard from the beginning, not something new, what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. You want to endure? You want to last? Abide in Jesus. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. I guess I already read that. (laughs) But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. So why am I up here or anybody else? Again, that's, that's another issue. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as has taught you, abide in him. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, second coming, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Some of these teachers that were coming in were probably also just encouraging unrighteousness and um, body's not a big deal. Kind of do what you want. Find the secret knowledge and you're good. No, it's sin, it's relationships, it's Jesus. Anyway, that's to help us see how mingled what happened in the early church is exactly with what Jesus prophesied would happen. And they're saying, hey, we've got to help everybody see this. All right, verse 12, Matthew. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So lawlessness will increase, wickedness will rise. And because of this, love will grow cold. So again, the New Testament letters are full of this. Surrounding culture influencing the purity of the church. Corinthians. If you're familiar with that. Lots of stuff going on there. Lots of wickedness infecting the church. People like Demas leaving Paul goes on. So cooling Christianity won't last. The increase 
of lawlessness is proportionate to the decrease of love, of real love. More wickedness, more unrighteousness, less love. Contrary to our culture, which is... Yeah. If love is the fulfillment of the law, this shouldn't surprise us. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So if there's lots of lawlessness and wickedness, there's a whole lot less love. And so this verse reminds us to check on what we love. Uh, and I love the way the King James Version puts it. The love of many shall wax cold. So like a wick being snuffed out by wax, is your love for God and your love for others cooling or is it increasing? Where are you on the waxing scale if you're a candle? Are you barely glimmering? Is your candle about out? And it's okay to admit that and say it is. And Jesus loves you. And that's why he's telling you this. Don't let your love grow cold. Wickedness is going to increase. Keep loving. Keep trusting. Keep going. Verse 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So in some interpretive frameworks, this verse is used to reference the end of the world at the second coming, but I don't think that's necessarily right. It may only refer, and I think it only refers, to the gospel spreading among Jew and Gentile and the whole Roman Empire. Pretty much what Acts talks about. Paul himself spoke of the faith of Christians in Rome. In Romans, Paul said that their faith had been declared in all the world. He could talk like that. The whole empire. The end here is the end of the age of the Jerusalem temple. The age to come was invading the present age. So Jesus would rise from the dead, ascend to his father, demonstrating that he indeed had all the authority and that God had come to earth, that he had defeated the powers of Satan, sin, and death, and he had shattered them. And that his words here, that what he says here would be vindicated at the fall of Jerusalem, vindicated at his resurrection, that he indeed is the fulfillment of all the promises of God to Israel. He is the enthroned king. He is the Messiah. So if all of this, if everything here is about then, what does all of this have to do with us? like I've been trying to show, interweaving. Well, that's a ton to do with us because we have many of the same issues. And I think that's because we all live in between the times. Just as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.11, where he says that the Old Testament was written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. All the Old Testament, all those stories, all those things that happened back then, written for your instruction. I believe this is written for our instruction now, even though that happened then. So Jesus wants us to be convinced of the truth in Him, to be courageous in Him, to love Him and to love one another. So don't get hung up on the interpretation. Let's be people that hold fast to the truth that are strong and courageous in a world gone crazy, that love God and love other people because the gospel is going to triumph. Jesus wins. We can walk away from these passages feeling pessimistic about the world, but I believe God is actually calling us to feel optimistic. Destruction and pain, real, destruction and pain are going to come in life, no matter what. So there's a sense in which it's true to say that life is suffering. But even more than that, we are to be those who are the most hopeful people in the world. That's what he's calling us to. The hope in him. The hope in his triumph. And so we should complain less about the world around or American culture falling away or whether or not we're here in the future or not. And more hope in our coming king. And his kingdom. We're to be people of hope. That should define us. And i got to be honest, I'm not wired that way. <laughs> Radical hope and triumph doesn't exactly ooze out of me on a daily basis. But by the Spirit, He can work that more and more into me. He can work that more and more into you. You and I can complain less and be courageous more. But we have to see, it says see here over and over again, what Jesus is calling us to see. 
We have to stay tuned into the news of His Gospel more than any other news. Whether it's national news, news on your favorite channel, whether it's news from your doctor, that isn't to either ultimately make us complain and get all worried and concerned, and it is not obviously ultimately to make us go, oh, everything's fixed, everything's good. I guess we got it good now. No, it's not ultimately good until Jesus comes again. That's the news we're to live off of. We need to believe that birth pains are the signs of something new bursting on the world. That this old age is passing away. That Jesus has already defeated the powers of Satan, sin, and death. And that they finally and fully will be destroyed and damned forever. And so being an end times Christian is not being a Christian convinced of your favorite chart. Like that one. Of how the second coming happens or how all this fits together. But it's being convinced by faith and radical hope that in the future... The accuser of the brethren will be damned. The one who accuses you will be damned. He's been thrown down. He's been defeated. His accusations cannot stand. The end of the age has come. To be convinced that justification by faith has already happened. That again is the example of the age to come coming into the present. Forgiveness of sins is now. It just isn't later at the final judgment. The verdict has come. You are not condemned. You are free. There is no condemnation that exists, one translation has it, for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the end invading the present. That's the verdict being said over your life. So we have to be courageous in that. We have to believe that because a lot of times it doesn't feel that way. And that death will be destroyed completely. News like we heard this morning of a family grieving because of death will not happen again. The curse in, in every aspect, cosmically, on the earth, earthquakes, everything, the curse, the fallenness will be removed completely, gone. And so we don't have to be afraid of the end ultimately like I was as a kid. Because one day, every single one of us is going to share in this meal that we do every week that celebrates the victory that Jesus won with His broken body and His spilled blood. We're going to celebrate the victory in its fullness that every rule and every authority and every power is destroyed and every enemy is under Jesus' feet. He's enthroned. He's king. We can't really see it, but we will. And that's why we're going to take communion to remember that. Let's do that.